And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to episode 99 of the Keith Law Show. Very exciting, almost to a major, if somewhat meaningless, milestone. My guest this week is Dan Pfeiffer, who was communications director and later special advisor in the Barack Obama White House. He has a great new book called Battling the Big Lie about the fight against misinformation online. His focus is primarily on political misinformation, but I think it's applicable to lots of other areas, including science and medical misinformation, which is a topic that I think affects pretty much everybody who is online or frankly, even if you're kind of existing, if you participate in a society, shall we say. Before I get to the interview, I've been on vacation for the last couple of weeks, and this is my first podcast in a while. I've also uh, put up my first post for article for subscribers to The Athletic in a while, a scouting blog post based on a number of minor league games I've been to, mostly since I got back. There are notes on Ricky Tiedemann, Anthony Volpe, Elvis Martinez, Quinn Priester, Heston Kirstad, a bunch of prospects from the Blue Jays, Yankees, Pirates, Orioles, Guardians. I think that's everybody. Um, and we'll be continuing to go to games right up through the end of the minor league season. But if you're a subscriber to The Athletic, please check that post out. During uh, some of my time off, I went to Gen Con, which is the year's biggest board game convention anywhere in the Americas, actually. It's held every year in, in Indianapolis, or at least is for now. And I wrote a couple of posts for Paste Magazine about that experience, uh, ranked the 10 best games that were new to me that I tried there. Obviously, there were a lot of games that I'd played before, and then did another kind of omnibus post, everything I saw, played, demoed, even heard about uh, while I was at the convention. Those are all at Paste Magazine. Com. If you just search on my name, you can find those. You'll also find my individual board game reviews, including one I just posted on a game that's a little bit older. Uh, it's about a year old called Lost Ruins of Arnak, but that is truly great. It's gotten some really great reviews. It was a finalist for the Kenner Spiel des Jahres Award, which is a big deal. If you follow board games at all, you know what that is. And it's a game I just thought was a little bit late to playing, but really, really enjoyed. So again, if you're following me for any of the board game stuff, please feel free to check that out, that out as well. I am thrilled to be joined today by Dan Pfeiffer, former senior advisor to President Barack Obama, co-host of Pod Save America, and author of a new book, Battling the Big Lie, How Fox, Facebook, and the MAGA Media Are Destroying America. You can find Dan on Twitter at Dan Pfeiffer, P-F-E-I-F-F-E-R. Dan, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, happy to be here. So I've had a longstanding interest in how misinformation spreads online, even predating our current environment. Going back to anti-vaccine activity, I would see on Twitter 
more than a decade ago, which is horrifying to think I've been on Twitter that long. <laughs> um, at the time, it was mostly about Andrew Wakefield's fraudulent study falsely linking the MMR vaccine to autism. Yeah. And even though his study has been debunked, he was stripped of his medical license, the lie lives on. And now it's really infected, bad pun, COVID vaccine discourse, mm-hmm. which makes me worry, uh, especially going into reading your book, putting myself in that mindset, mm-hmm. is there hope for any of us in the fight against misinformation of all sorts with so many bad actors involved, especially online? Yes, there's hope. We have to be realistic about that hope. There's a lot of work that has to be done. Everyone has to be involved. We need better uh, work from the traditional media. We need this, particularly the social media platforms to do a better and more aggressive job of pushing back on it. All of us need to learn the right habits about how we debunk misinformation and avoid inadvertently spreading it further. We need in this country a greater focus on media literacy and uh, sort of critical thinking in our sort of education system. And there, I mean, the, the greatest hope we have for it is that we've been in this very weird place where technology changed so quickly that it, that we have large swaths of the population who grew up with one set of understanding of how you got information that is so dramatically changed. And, and now that we have more people aging into the population who grew up on the internet, they are have a much better understanding of how to separate fact from fiction, how to behave on these platforms, how to understand where to find real information. And with a, what actually I think, and this has some consequences, but in terms of the fight for misinformation, against misinformation is better is they have a healthy skepticism of information and they know to sort of double check things. So there, my sort of view always is we have to survive this period right now because the <laughs> next generation, uh, if we can do that, the next generation is be much better at avoiding some of the pitfalls we're facing now. Actually, it's funny you say that because I was in the car with my daughter yesterday and um, she she read something to me. Oh, it was the school district in Missouri is bringing back corporal punishment. It's like, what no. year are you reading from? And she said, well, this is from the Daily Mail. I said, nope. That is not reliable. <laughs> but before I could even get the sentence out, she was going, looking through other sources, and she yeah. goes, oh, the Washington Post. That's good, right? Yeah. And I'm, Perfect. Yeah. We've, we've taught you well. And there's, there is hope, I think, in the next yeah. generation that enough of them understand, even with the way they're consu- – because she consumes this information very differently than I do. You know, I'm on Twitter and I'm still on Facebook. And she's like, you're mm-hmm. old, mm-hmm. Uh, which is true. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, I want—I did want to follow up. You just mentioned one thing in passing there that I is a lesson I personally mm-hmm. feel like I've learned in the last year or so, which is to avoid inadvertently spreading this misinformation. And I feel like so much of Twitter discourse, people mm-hmm. can't see I'm doing the air quotes right. here, but uh, yeah, Twitter, right? Twitter's a cesspool and yet I'm on there <laughs> all the time. But yeah, me too. the idea of the dunk, right? I'm going to, this person said this really dumb thing um, this person who I don't agree with, and therefore I'm going to dunk on them. I'm going to quote tweet them and make them look like a fool. And it never really occurred to me during the course of the dunk, because it feels good, right, to yeah, dunk on it. it's cathartic, right? for sure. Yes. Yeah. But then you realize you're actually just spreading not just their message, which is the very thing in general we want to avoid spreading, but their name and their address and encouraging people mm to people who might follow me or maybe don't agree with me on that topic to go and seek that other person out. And I feel like that's, I, I not just I feel like, I know that is something I have actively tried to do less when on Twitter because I was doing the thing you said. I was actually giving more air to the bad ideas and I need to stop doing that. 
Yeah, there's sort of two ways of looking at this. One is, and this is something I write about in the book, and it's like an, an old defunct lesson of sort of PR and communications is in the pre-internet era, if you did not, if there was some sort of conspiracy theory or something uh, sort of bubbling out there, maybe in the dark recesses of the early internet or sort of spreading around, you never wanted to give it attention. You didn't want to do the Streisand effect, which would give give air to it, right? Because, you know, if a political candidate, political campaign or the president mentioned it, then now the press has a reason to cover it if they weren't covering it. That in the age of the internet, that we don't have gatekeepers anymore. So just because the New York Times isn't writing about it doesn't mean people aren't hearing it. So you, you actually do have to take these things head on, but how you do it matters a lot. Because what I think enough people do not understand is how social media platforms work, which is that they like, what we always have to remember is they are businesses whose job it is to keep you on their platform for as long as humanly possible in order to do two things, learn as much about you as possible, and then sell that data to advertisers. And while you're on the platform, <laughs> show you as many of those ads as possible. It's a money-making endeavor. So they're constantly using highly sophisticated artificial intelligence, supercomputing to determine what they believe based on everything they know about you. And they know a ton about you is content you're most likely to engage with. And they view engagement as any interaction. It can be a heart emoji. It could be the middle finger. It could be telling someone to F off. It could be sharing it. All of those things are treated exactly the same. So what you're doing, the more engagement a piece of content gets, the more people who see it. So every time we dunk on someone, we tell them they're lying, we respond in the comments, we are giving, we are telling the algorithm that this is something more people want to see, so they show it to more people. And so this is something Republicans have very cleverly weaponized over the last many years. It's something that Donald Trump was a master of. And more and more Democrats are learning how to avoid giving into that, but certainly not enough far yet. Your entire book reminded me of uh, Brandolini's law, which is that the amount of energy needed to refute bullshit is an order of magnitude bigger than that needed to produce it, yes. uh, which yes, says yes, to yes. me that producing bullshit will always be way more profitable, right? Your costs are lower, yes. clearly, than right. refuting it. So one of the core messages I saw from your book, at least, and I'd like you to explain a little mm -hmm. bit, is that this isn't just a battle of resources. Because I think if it is, we, you know, those of us on the side of truth probably end up losing because there are far more people with a financial incentive to continue pushing misinformation. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and it is like, it's worth sort of just like stipulating that there has been a strain of conspiracy theorists people, prof grifters profiting off conspiracy theorists, like with snake oil salesmen for as long as uh, the people have lived on this planet, particularly in this country, right? You have, you know, is Elvis alive? Uh, the moon landings faked, right? Well, there are a whole host of things. Some of them are more malicious than others, but that exists. What has changed now is the advent of social media has allowed those things to spread at scale and to reach people in ways they never could before and in very sort of nefarious ways, like under headlines from innocuous seeming, uh, legitimate seeming news outlets, right? That give it this imprimatur of credibility that did not happen. It was just like some crazy, you know, your crazy uncle telling you or, you know, some, you know, something you read in the back of a magazine or something like that that was very different. 
And so that has always existed. That will continue to exist. Your ability to profit off of those things has gone way up as the internet has reduced the friction it takes to profit off of those things, right? And you and much of the anti-vaccine movement in this country, both during COVID and long before COVID, has been pushed by people who are making a ton of money off of it. Many of whom probably know better, but it is a it is a financial and that is we're all like that is just like a fact of life on all things. Like there is there are for. Whether whether you are fighting drug abuse, identity theft, there are always people who are going to have a financial incentive to break the laws and break the rules. What we have to do, what from a political perspective, uh, which is where what is my interest, is reorient our thinking to how we confront those things and think about not the short term financial interest of defeating, but the long term collective interest of defeating them. Right, which is we're probably not going to make a ton of money. Although you like, you like, in some of the, there are ways to run good businesses that are pushing good information. You know, like the think that Positive American Cooking Media is one of is one of those examples. But ultimately, the the you you're not going to win any of the political battles if you're not winning the message battle. You're not going to win the messaging battle if you don't defeat disinformation. You identify three major groups, and they're in the subtitle of your book, too, uh, or, or forces on the wrong side of the misinformation wars, two of which just today, this is a Friday, and as we record this, two of which have popped up again. They've been at, they're up to their old tricks. So to, you know, today, or sorry, earlier this week, Dr. Anthony Fauci announced his retirement for the NIH, and Fox host Tucker Carlson ran a segment, uh, a rant really against him that was so full of false claims that Science Magazine, that notoriously political entity, Science Magazine, ran an editorial calling out all the lies and half-truths in Carlson's statements. But Fox is this monolith, this huge global corporation, one of the most watched programs in America with tentacles in all sorts of media. And obviously you go into this book, but explain a little bit of what do we do? Those of us who look, those of us who go to the gym and see Fox News on televisions, short of you know bringing a baseball bat and smashing all the TVs, which you know that's why I'm not allowed at the YMCA anymore. What else can we do to try to fight a, an entity that is that large and that has realized there's lots of profit in doing what they're doing? Well, I think it's important to put to truly, and this is one of the reasons why I wrote the book, is to truly understand Fox's impact. So on a given night, Tucker Carlson, who is the most viewed uh fox host uh gets between four and five million voters which is on the scale of cable television this day and age that is a lot that's more than a lot of nba games get in the regular season it is uh you know more than uh you know to put it in perspective the so he got basically crossing on most nights gets about half the audience of the premiere of the new game of thrones show on hbo got uh, house of the dragon so like still but then you put in large perspective, 168 or so million people voted in 2020 and only 4 million of them are watching Fox News. So it's like, how are those people so powerful, right? How, like what the, it seems like you have 4 million decided voters. And it's largely because Tucker Carlson and people at Fox do not think of those 4 million viewers as the end consumer. They spread the message to them. And then they think of those people as four to five million people are gonna go out and spread the message themselves. They're going to do it on social media. They're going to talk to their family at the dinner table. They're going to mention it at, you know, around the water cooler or whatever way in which they're talking to people, they are spreading the message. And I think what progressives who are trying and the people who are trying to fight this information is we have to think about how do we turn the people who listen to our message or want to hear our message, you want to fight back to Fox to spread 
good information, different information, factual information out there. Because, you know, there have been all these efforts over the years around Fox, which is we're going to try to, you know, we're going to we're going to lobby corporations to stop running ads on Tucker Carlson. And there has been like some real success there. Like some nights it is just like some, you know, post, you know, you can buy some gold coins with Donald Trump's face on them. You can buy, <laughs> uh, you can buy just general gold. Uh, and then they just advertise other Fox shows because they can't get real corporate. You know, most corporations do not want their message in between like some white supremacist rants. But that mi misunderstands where Fox gets its money. Fox gets most of its money, like all cable channels do, because the cable companies pay Fox to be carried on those networks. So you're, even if we were to get rid of all of Fox's advertisers, they would still Fox would still make a bunch of money. And I've sort of come around, and we've done similar things with, you know, trying to pressure Facebook to be better and trying to pressure Twitter to be better and ban this person and get Trump off the platform and all of those things. And I've sort of come to the conclusion that ultimately all of those uh, strategies are ones that are designed to get large corporations and like tech executives to do the right thing, even if that right thing is not in their business interest. And that is just like no history of that succeeding in over the course of civilization. Right. Like that's just never worked. And so like what I've been trying to encourage people to do is let's take the energy. We take the anger, the frustration, the impetus that we have to deal with Fox and, and the MAGA media, or whoever else for Facebook and take it and put it into promoting good information, subscribing to good media, sharing good content, sharing factual content, doing it that way where we're going to have to instead of trying to stop their content. We got to promote ours. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And then, meanwhile, the second group in your second entity in your subtitle, Facebook, excuse me, Meta, uh, their beloved founder and president for life, Mark Zuckerberg, was actually in the news today for once for doing a good thing in the misinformation battle. He said Facebook blocked posts about Hunter Biden's laptop leading up to the 2020 election because the FBI, Donald Trump's FBI, uh, advised them that the story was, to put it mildly, misinformation. But in your view, in the book, and you go into this with a lot of examples, Facebook is responsible for far more harm than good in this arena. You've, you've addressed a little bit of this in your the last answer you gave, but also I'm curious, what makes them worse than say Twitter, where I spend more time, so I've probably got a biased view, or YouTube, where which I think has been very lax, at least again on the science misinformation front, you can still find the, the you know, give your kids bleach to cure their autism posts on YouTube and you can't get them taken down. So there, 
to be clear, none of these folks are covered in glory, right? They are all problematic. <laughs> yes. I focus on Facebook for a couple of reasons. Mm -hmm. One is pure scale, right? Facebook is 70% of US adults are on Facebook. Of that 70%, half of them visit the platform multiple times a day. Of that 70%, 40% of them view it as a major source of news. And so you're getting, you know, when you're talking about 70% of US adults, you're talking about tens of millions of people who are using Facebook. Many of those people are using it for news. It is a platform that is rife with misinformation that makes it as a proud company policy stance that they are not going to fact check anything, right? They are, and they will also allow you to use their tremendous amounts of data that they've hoovered up from your life to target the people that their algorithms say are most likely to believe disinformation to target them with ads uh, with disinformation. And so in, from a pure bit of scale, they are by far the worst. YouTube also has some real problems around misinformation, on radicalization. I think they have done, and these are, you know, we're tripping over low bars of expectations. They have done a little <laughs> bit, they've done more than Facebook has to try to stem those things. Um, they have to do a ton more. But when in the terms and like in and because my focus in this in this book and my life is in politics, right? And how this affects politics. And Facebook is a much more dangerous platform from a term of political impact than YouTube because so many more Americans use Facebook for news than they use YouTube for news. Now YouTube can you can start with something entertaining, and next thing you know, you're watching some deep, you know, deeply, deeply disturbing thing. And the recommendation, and there's a, a lot of smarter people than I have written a lot and talked a lot about the danger of the recommendation algorithm on on YouTube, um, which get you know can get can do politics. Like a lot of people who are radicalized in QAnon got there through YouTube. A lot of people who are radicalized on uh, sort of white supremacist malicious stuff got there through. YouTube, but also on a whole host of other sort of deeply dangerous things happens there too. So they're like, they're all, they're all bad. Twitter is very bad, but it's very small. Just on a, it's just a fraction of the size of these other platforms. And even that, this is the stat that always gets me is that 90% of the tweets on the platform come from 10% of the users. Mm -hmm. Yes, so Most it, people are consuming <laughs> it, but not interacting with it. It is very interesting to me Again, I spend most of my online time, at least when it comes to social media, it's on Twitter. I mean, that's where the, it's where I have the largest following. It's where my payoff is for promoting yeah. my own work, honestly. Yeah. And it is always funny to me when I will even turn to my wife, who has a Twitter account, but is not on the site very much um, at all. And I'll say, did you see X, Y, Z? And she says, no. And it is this daily reminder that Twitter is not real life. And most yeah. people, the things that are things that are trending on Twitter or a Twitter controversy, you walk around the street and people have no idea what you're talking about at all, which in, in some sense is good. I do not want Twitter to be real life. That is right. a nightmare scenario. Yeah. Um, whereas I do think stuff that is on Facebook does seep more into real oh, life. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Like Facebook is a, or Twitter is a bubble. It is primarily a conversation between people who are highly engaged in politics, highly engaged in media, that could be sports media, it could be entertainment media, it can be political media, but it, that's why it, that's why there's a payoff. I, you're on Twitter for the same reason I'm on Twitter. It is a way to get news and a way to get people to consume my content because it's the biggest bang for your buck. It's where people go to read things, right? It's where they go to, and so like they're, they're, they're very active communities, but they are 
relatively small and relatively isolated from the, the populace at large. You've hinted at this as well, but I would like to get it because this is less sort of less covered directly in the book. You've talked your your interest is political. Um, my primary interest in when it comes to misinformation is just science. It's not my job, but it's, it's just a matter of personal interest and has very much to do with the, the world I want my kids to grow up in. Also, yep. there was a story in the BBC that ran about a month ago about a guy named E. Bruce Harrison, who was a PR executive in Britain, who kind of masterminded, I hate using that word, but the fossil fuel industry's response to climate change mitigation actions, legislations, treaties, et cetera. And what he did starting in 1992, his tactics of obfuscation, uh, misinformation, even finding scientists who were willing to be paid experts and sort of cast doubt on climate change research, we're still paying for that. And so I wonder, do you feel like the calls to action that are in battling the big lie. And you do have, so you've explained several today, there's more for folks to go read the book. Do you feel like those are universal, that this is just any misinformation, any field? You're focusing on politics. Do you feel like we could use a similar, at least playbook when it comes to science or other matters of misinformation that we see spreading? I I would say also, I feel like in LGBT rights, we see a lot of this stuff too. Yeah, I mean, it, the answer to the question is yes. Not all of them will apply in exact the same way, but we basically also live in a society now where everything is political, right? The The Republican Party has co-opted the anti-vaccine movement for their benefit. They have co-opted QAnon, the, you know, all of the misinformation funded by the fossil fuel industry related to climate change is very, has been a very important part of the Republican efforts to demagogue the issue and stop progress. There, you know, across all those things, there is an element, you know, obviously the the demagoguing of, of the LGBTQ plus community is a huge part of that now, um, you know, has been for a long time and gotten even worse in the last couple of years. And so like, like if you were someone who passionately cared about pushing back on you know, bogus client science or bogus vaccine, I think there are lessons to learn from this. That may, you know, some of the stuff that's broader about political messaging may not apply directly, but I think my hope would be that anyone who is concerned about misinformation uh, can learn a lot from the book. Bit of a personal question related to you know, these sort of topics, though. I'm curious what you think, uh, whether you think this is even something sort of worth doing, worth recommending other people do. Um, anytime I receive a package in the mail, I look at the underside of the package and see who made the box. And if it says Uline, I go back to the shipper, the vendor, mm. and say, can you please find someone else for your shipping needs? And I usually include a link or two from reputable mm. sources like the Washington Post. For folks who don't know, the Ulines who run the company uh, have donated tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars to, say, people backing the big lie, people yeah. uh, to anti-LGBTQ legislation across the country, to a lot of things, a lot of legislation designed to undermine public schools and so on. And I just don't want my, you know, this is a personal thing. If I'm going to buy money from your, buy products from your company, I don't want my money going back through the chain to wherever the EU lines decide to put their money. Yeah. Do you think that kind of sort of, I call it microactivism, it's probably even overblowing up. Do you think it's useful or am I just kind of making myself feel better while screaming into the void? Look, every little bit helps, right? And, and people should uh, vote with their dollars, right? How they want to, in their time and their attention, how do you, how do you want to spend it if you can get people to do it? Like, is it... Is your individual efforts going to change the world? Maybe not, but if there are a whole bunch of people like you doing it, it will matter. And I, you know, and I go back and forth on these things always, right? I think people should make their own decisions, right? Am I going to patronize this business? 
you know, like we think about this all the time with, you know, sort of restaurant chains where the owners are, you know, have deep, maybe offensive views on you know marriage or LGBTQ plus rights or whatever it is. And you're like, maybe I'm going to decide that if I'm going to take my kids out for a burger, that's not where I'm going to do it. But then sometimes you also think that the people who work at those places may not feel that same way. And if we boycott them, are they losing their jobs? Right. And that's like, that's always the thing I sort of wrestle with of sometimes that sort of activism, it, you know, I, I think everyone should make their own decisions. I can argue it round or flat, but the other side of it always is, is like, who are the other, the, the guy, the guy at the top, is going to get rich no matter what. It is, uh, <laughs> and so the, the people who work for him are probably underpaid and struggling. Are they the, the first ones to suffer from it? And I think everyone sort of has to make their own decision about how they feel about how their dollars uh, should be spent. Final question for you, and this is more, I'm just curious whether you're kind of an optimist, a pessimist, mm-hmm. but what do you think is going to happen in our elections this November? Just big picture. I'm not asking you to forecast like, you know, Texas 32 specifically, but yeah. you know, people always ask me for predictions. Yeah. And I, just yeah. to let you know, I'm wrong all the time. Like yeah. I predict well, things about baseball a, players. I'm always wrong. I have a rule against making predictions. I've had it ever since the 2016 election, but I will give you my <laughs> sense of the political environment, which is if you would ask me six months ago, are Democrats going to win? I would say almost certainly not. All of the historical trends, the environmental trends, the maps would all say the Democrats were probably going to lose the House by a very large margin. Mm -hmm. And they had a shot in the Senate, but it was probably a long shot. Um, That has changed dramatically. It's changed since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. It has changed as gas prices have now gone down for like 70 days in a row. It's changed as the Democrats have had a run of successes in Congress, which reminded a lot of people who had disengaged from the process why voting is important. And there have been some data points that suggest that Democrats could outperform historical expectations. There was the ballot referendum in Kansas, a very Republican state, where the pro-choice uh, pro-access to abortion side won by, in, by double digits. And then there was a primary a congressional special election in New York uh, this past week where it took place in a district that Biden won by two and a half points. And in general, if we were facing a Republican wave, you will, a Democrat would lose that district. But the Democrat, Pat, Pat Ryan, outperformed Biden and we in one. And we've now seen four special elections in a row since the abortion decision where Democrats have outperformed their 2020 performance. And so... I would say the Democrats have a very good shot at keeping the Senate, maybe expanding our lead in a in a shot, maybe a long shot, but a, but a, certainly a shot we didn't think we'd have uh, to keep the House. My guest today has been Dan Pfeiffer, author of Battling the Big Lie, How Fox, Facebook, and the MAGA Media Are Destroying America. You can find him on Twitter at Dan Pfeiffer and his newsletter at messagebox.substack.com. Dan, thank you so much for joining me. Keith, thanks for having me. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great guest lined up for show number 100. I won't spoil that just yet, but really looking forward to getting that. And this podcast should be weekly now for at least the next several months. I will also have more scouting blog posts up through the end of the minor league season. Those of you who've been looking for some of my regular September content, it all is all still scheduled. I should do my players I was wrong about post. If you have particular suggestions on that, please feel free to either tweet them at me or maybe post them. You could post a comment on my blog, post it on my, uh, any comment, comment on any of my posts on my Facebook page. Those are all fine ways. If you have particular suggestions of players for that column, I do take those suggestions very seriously. 
I will also do my hypothetical award ballots. I have an NL Rookie of the Year vote this year, so I won't disclose who I would vote for in that award, but I will write up who I would vote for in the other five categories. And we'll also do my Minor League Player of the Year post, uh, another one that uh, I have actually deliberately not been thinking about it yet. I want to kind of go into that with a clean mind. Um, it's been kind of nice to be away for a little bit and come back now to, I wasn't really checking box scores. I wasn't checking much except just headlines while I was on vacation. And I have to say it was it was pretty great. And I feel more energized and more ready to put together some of these posts. All three of those things I just described will run, I believe, at some point in September, although we haven't scheduled any of them specifically yet. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.